Welcome to Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church's Good Friday live stream message. Uh, if you haven't got a chance to read the email that we that Charlie and I have sent out earlier this week, take a uh, take the opportunity to do so. Uh, in it, uh, amongst several things, we explain that uh, we will continue to be live streaming as long as the stay-at-home order is in place. And there's a number of other things that may uh, pique your interest there as well and, and things that you may find helpful. Uh, as seeing as how we are running on a skeleton crew down here at the church, we will forego uh, any kind of attempt to acapella. So uh, we will proceed straight to the scripture reading uh, and then uh, a short prayer and then we'll go into the Good Friday message. Uh, if you have your Bible, which I, I hope you do, turn to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this Gospel we have been going through for the last three years or so, uh, looking at anywhere from uh, sometimes one or two, but uh, up to 10 to 15 to maybe even 20 verses at a time each Sunday morning. We are going to read the Gospel account of what happened on this night, approximately 2,000 years ago. Uh, the Jewish calendar, if you don't know, uh, the, each day actually begins with the evening. If you, look at, uh, if you look at Genesis, it says, and it was evening and it was morning the first day. Evening and morning the second day. And so the Jews saw that the, thought, saw that the day actually began when evening came. And so... Uh, if you turn to Mark chapter 14, this is uh, beginning with the Last Supper. Uh, we don't know exactly what time the Last Supper was, but this is approximately when Friday, as the Jews would have understood it, began. Uh, Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them 
and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple, made with hands, and in three days I will build another, made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and the coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? 
You have heard this blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither nor know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders and scribes, and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim, Hail, the king of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. They tied him 
they tried to give him mixed wine with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are, who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There also were some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, came a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God and he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead and ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Liturgically, we call this Good Friday, not because the portions of Scripture which which pertain to the events of this day sound uh, particularly good. Uh, as you'll see uh, in a few minutes, it is Good Friday. It is a good day because of the fruit, because of the results and the consequences of what God brought about on this very, very unique day. Good Friday. 
finds its beginnings in the Jewish Passover. Passover was kind of like a, a hodgepodge of Thanksgiving, um, Christmas, New Year's, and Fourth of July all wrapped into one. Uh, it was a time that the nation came together in thankful remembrance uh, of the incredible gift that God had given to Israel, the gift of a, of a new start, uh, and a new start which was bought, brought about as they were redeemed from their old way of life, which was a life marked by cruel bondage to the most powerful man and the most powerful nation of the, of the old world. And with that new start came a new identity, uh, a, new, a new culture to embrace, a new way to live, uh, new promises to rest on. Indeed, uh, for, the, for the children of Israel, all things were being made new with this Passover, with the first Passover. And if you recall that first Passover, which happened uh, so long ago, even a while by the time Jesus came around, uh, that first Passover came at the climax of ten of the ten plagues in Egypt. And each plague demonstrated that the God of Israel, the one true God, the, the God who made heaven and earth, was superior to each and every God found in Egypt. All the gods that the Egyptians turned to and clung to and prayed to and worshipped and placed their lives in, the God of Israel was far superior. The first plague of the ten was the turning of the Nile River into blood. And this was a direct assault on the Egyptian god Hopi. And Hopi was the, was the bearer of water. By, by turning the Nile River into blood, it was as if the God of Israel had come into Hopi's own stadium where Hopi had the home field advantage. Hopi knew the terrain. Hopi was already dug in. He had the, he had the support of his fan base. And yet the God of Israel, the, the new God on the block, as it were, just comes in and wrecks havoc on another god's turf, and there's nothing that Hoppy can do about it. And the same follows for the second plague, uh, the, the, the plague of frogs. Uh, back in the ancient Mediterranean, uh, in Egypt, frogs, kind of like bunnies are today, uh, frogs were a sign of fertility. They were a sign of fertility, and they were thus the appropriate mascot of one of the fertil- fertility goddesses, Uh, named Hecate. Hecate herself was thought to have the head of a frog. And at God's, at the God of Israel's bidding, at his power, he brought this massive abundance of frogs. And then at his bidding, by his power, they were immediately removed, which Exodus tells us that Pharaoh's magicians could not duplicate that wonder or that plague. So yet again, the God of Israel proves to be superior to a God in Egypt. The, the third plague, the plague of the gnats, which 
which Exodus tells us arose from the dust of the earth, showed that Israel's God was stronger than Egypt's God of, of the dust and of the soil, a, a God by the name of Geb. And it's at this point with, the, with, this, with this plague of gnats that arose from the, from the earth, it's at this point that Pharaoh's magicians wisen up and they have the sense to say this. When, when they see what, what Moses is doing by the power of the God of Israel, they say, this, this is the hand of God. Not just a God, but the God. Pharaoh, however, remains stubborn and he hardens his heart and he resolves not to be bested by this intruding, interloping God uh, who is claiming Israel for his own. This God who thinks, uh, who has the audacity to think that he has the right, that he has the prerogative to just waltz into town and tell Pharaoh what he can and cannot do. The result of Pharaoh's stubborn obstinance uh, of him hardening his heart is seven more plagues, each targeting uh, the remaining gods that the Egyptian people uh, looked to and prayed to and worshipped, gods that they continued to put their hope and trust in. And each of these seven plagues, they became more and more severe. They, they progress uh, at the onset from being uh, mildly inconvenient to becoming greatly agitating and then even escalating to having terrible, damaging consequences. Hail falls from the sky and kills livestock. Locusts come and just completely ravage the crops. And then the people become completely paralyzed with fear as the sun just simply turns off and they are shrouded in deep darkness for three days. The climax in this showdown between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt comes in a very unique plague. It's the tenth plague a plague that stands in a category of its own. It was very selective in that it destroyed Egypt's firstborns, firstborn humans and firstborn animals. Exodus 11, 4-6 says, Then Moses, uh, Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals, then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. Now, Here's an important question. Why the firstborn? Well, from the very start, God had told Moses in Exodus 4:22 and following. He tells Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. 
So I said, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. The firstborn was the pool uh, that produced the country's ruling elite, the, the, the generals and the military officers, the, the chief administrators, the, the Forbes 500 CEOs came from among the, this pool of the firstborns, and least of not which is the pharaohs themselves. The pharaohs were firstborns. And now the, this particular pharaoh whom Moses is addressing uh, apparently wasn't a firstborn himself since he didn't die in the plague. Perhaps he, perhaps his older brother, uh, uh, ha- was the, f- who was the firstborn, uh, had died. And this Pharaoh was next in line. But we see that his son, who was next in line to secede him when he died, that his son, who was to be the next Pharaoh, he did perish in this plague. And all the while, as this terrible calamity is unfolding, the gods of Egypt are silent. Serket, the the goddess of protection, proves powerless to protect against the God of Israel. Meshkinet, the, the goddess who presided at the birth of children, failed to save the firstborns. Sobek, the god, a god of protection and a god of fertility, who was uh, who was also worshipped as the source of the might behind the pharaohs, couldn't protect anyone, not even the next pharaoh. Renenutet, the god, uh, the vulture god, uh, who was the special protector, the special bodyguard of the pharaohs, couldn't protect the Pharaoh to be from being slain by the God of Israel. And where was Osiris, the the great giver and ruler of life? Where, Where was he? Why could he not intervene and stop the God of Israel? This night, this terrible night, became known as the Passover. And that word Passover, it, come, it comes from a word which means to, to appease, or if you, if you want a $50 word, propitiate, propitiate. And that, that word is appropriate because it, it, it comes from the fact that while God's judgment fell upon Egypt, God needed to provide a means for his judgment to pass over, as it were, Israel. Israel needed to be uh, protected. Israel needed uh, an escape from God's wrath. Why? Well, here's a shocker. Uh, Israel was really no better than the people of Egypt. the, The children of Israel really were no better than Pharaoh himself. And uh, here at Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church, we have been reading through uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And we have seen again and again, just like the Egyptians, the children of Israel are stubborn. They're obstinate. They are idolatrous. They're self-willed, self-exalting, they're defiant, they're rebellious, they are very slow to listen, they are slow to learn, they are quick to forget, they are prone to wander and prone to disobey. In other words, 
they're sinners. Just like the Egyptians, Israel are just a bunch of sinners. The books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers clearly demonstrate this. But we, we like things polarized. We, we like it when it is easy, when the sides in a conflict are clearly defined and marked. And, and, and being on this side means that you're with the good guys. But being on this side means that you're with the bad guys. But here's the catch. When it comes to mankind, when it comes to real people, the kind of people that inhabit this earth, the people, that, uh, people like you and me and the people that live around us, When it comes to mankind, we are all the bad guys. We are all the bad guys. And that means that, listen, even God's people need a means of escape from God's judgment. Even God's people need a Passover, a means of escape, a way to propitiate, to atone to reconcile God's judgment. Now, in the type that God set down that would point forward to Christ, this came in the slaying of a lamb. This was the, this was the temporary means that God provided that would point forward to Christ, and that means was the slaying of a lamb. And uh, Exodus tells us, uh, when, when God is instructing uh, Israel in Exodus chapter 12 uh, to take a lamb. He says very specifically, it can't be uh, a defect. It, it can't be a. Uh, uh, it needs to be an unblemished lamb. It needs to be a spotless lamb. That means it, it can't be defective. It can't be sick or maimed or, or even discolored. There, there's uh, 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 every about every week. When I come into town, there is someone driving this pastel purple uh, Kia uh, over on Stillwater Road. And every time I see that car, I, I, I say to myself, who would want a car like that? And, and in the same way, there were some animals which were very important and valuable resources in the, in the ancient world, and they still are today. There are some animals, because of the way they look, or if they were deformed, or if they were sick or injured, you'd look at that and you'd go, who would want that? That's no good. Just, just, it, that's a throwaway. Just get rid of it. The lamb that was to be slain could not be like that. It could not be a throwaway worthless animal it needed to be unblemished it needed to be spotless it needed to be perfect and each family was was to kill this lamb on the night of the of the passover beginning with the very first one in exodus chapter 12 they were to kill this lamb at twilight they were to take its blood they were to apply it to the doorposts and the lintel of the house basically the whole door frame of the house. Why? Because God had said he is coming into town to slay all firstborns, all firstborns in the land of Egypt. And did you know Israel was situated in the in the land of Goshen, which was right smack dab in the middle of Egypt. It was actually the most fertile and most lush uh, uh, area of Egypt. God is coming into town to slay all firstborns in the, in the land. 
But as I said, he provided a means of escape. That means of escape, he said, was if when he when he came to a house, if he saw blood. If he saw the blood of an unblemished lamb applied to the doorposts, to the lintel of the house, if he saw the blood, he would pass over. As God would soon explain to Israel, blood averts the judgment of God, the wrath of God by making... uh, by making an appeasement, by reconciling, by by making right the that which had broken the relationship. And again, here's that $50 word, which is good to tuck into your back pocket and think about. Propitiate. Blood propitiates for sin. He would tell Israel uh, after they had come out of Egypt in Leviticus 17:11 he is explaining and, and and if you read Leviticus there is a lot of blood there is blood on every page and he explains to them for the for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is by the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement so when God saw the blood applied on the doorstep, he would reckon that death has already come to this house. A life has already been taken. And so he would pass over. And this makes sense when we recall that God had told, had told our great forebearer, Adam, in the day that you eat of the tree, and by extension, sin against me, you will die. Sin yields death. Sin yields judgment. And so sinners need a means for God's judgment, which their sin incurs, which their sin rightfully brings upon them. They need a means to escape that judgment, for, their, for that judgment to pass over them. And this, this type this shadow of greater things to come was a lamb's was a, was a slain lamb it was his blood but as you read the rest of the bible you find out that there's a problem with this there's an inadequacy with this and in that it is not just it is not right it is not equitable that a man should sin that a man should sin against another man who is made in God's image, or that a man should sin sin against God himself and have the judgment that rightfully should fall upon him fall upon an animal who is not a man. That is, that that, that really, it's quite logical when you think about it. it. That is not just, that is not rational, that is not right. And Hebrews 10.4 captures this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, and for that matter, lambs or turtle doves or, or any other animal in creation. It is impossible for the blood of these things to take away the sins of man. And that is why, that is why Christ Jesus came. 
That is why Christ Jesus came. He came to do what no animal's death could ever hope to accomplish. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20, that Christ, being, being the unblemished, spotless lamb who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, Christ Jesus has appeared in these last times for your sake. Christ came and was born and, and put on a, a nature like ours. Uh, he, Philippians 2 says he came in the appearance of a man in the form of a bondservant. He took upon human nature like us. Hebrews 2 says that he was made like his brethren. He came and became a man like us so that he could lay down his life so that he could die in our place and become our substitute so that our sins could be covered with not the blood of a, of a normal lamb, but with his own blood. And by being covered with his blood, the judgment of God for my sin might pass over me. And that the judgment of God for your sin might pass over you. Now think about that. Think about God's provision of Christ. Peter says he was he was foreknown as this spotless lamb since before the foundation of the world. The cross of Christ wasn't plan B. It always was and has been plan A. Now think about that as this final Passover draws near. And as Jerusalem swells with with pilgrims arriving and preparing for this for the great feast and the streets fill to the brim with sheep and everywhere Jesus goes there's sheep 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 there are sheep everywhere and just imagine what is going through his minds as through his mind as he's walking the streets as he as he sees the sheep as he heard the their bleeding uh, and even as he smells the sheep, yes, you can smell sheep. Imagine what went through his mind as, as he's navigating the streets and uh, a shepherd with a flock of sheep go past him and one of the sheep brushes his leg. Imagine what is going through his mind as he looks at that sheep and at that herd, knowing that it's on its way to the temple market where it would be inspected and then butchered. For Passover. Perhaps on this occasion he would recall to his mind what his cousin John the Baptist had said several years prior. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Imagine the irony. And there's a great irony here that this one who was walking through the streets of Jerusalem, seeing all these sheep that would be slain for the Passover, this is the very one. This is the very God who went into Egypt all those years ago and went house to house to house 
slaying his enemies and passing over those houses that had lamb's blood applied. But now as he's walking through these streets in the marketplaces and the temple grounds where Jerusalem's population has swelled into the millions and he is seeing unfathomable numbers of lambs. Each each one filled with precious, costly, ceremonial blood, which in truth, their blood was nothing but a cheap facsimile of his own blood. Their blood, as Hebrew says, was the shadow. His blood is the substance. They, every single sheep, every single lamb that had ever been slain in obedience to the Passover was a picture. It was a rehearsal. It was a foreshadowing. It was an arrow that pointed forward to the great sacrifice of Christ Jesus himself on the cross. The means by which God's people could escape judgment for their sin was not found in the ceremonial tradition, in the ceremonial sacrifice that was repeated year after year after year. The the sacrifice that was to be made on this Passover, however, was markedly different. The one true Lamb of God slain. And those who are covered by His blood, saved. Those who are covered by His blood, when God looks at them, just like in Egypt, when He sees the blood, He reckons that death has already come upon this one, upon this man, upon this woman. Death has already come. My judgment, my wrath is no longer needed here. Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Death has already been reckoned to come upon one who has traded places with Christ Jesus just in the very same way as death was reckoned to have visited the house with the Lamb's blood applied on the doorpost. So this very night, so many years ago, as Christ Jesus is mocked and tortured, Scourged, mocked, beat, spit upon, and crucified. He is not the victim. He is taking our place. He is winning the battle that we could never, ever fight. He is taking our place in judgment. Mark 10:45 says that the son of man came not to be served but to serve. And how does he serve? He serves by giving his life as a ransom for the many. That is a that is a great word, ransom, uh, a substitution, an exchange. Christ Jesus came, the one who deserved to be served by everyone, by the whole world with no end. He came to serve, to give himself as a substitution, as an exchange, 
as a ransom for sinners like you and me. So this very night, know that he has been made a captive so that captives may be set free. This very night, so many years ago, he, being an innocent man, has submitted himself to the corrupt judgment of wicked men so that those who legitimately have a charge levied against them in God's court, they may be acquitted. This very night, so many years ago, he is dying so that those who are dead in the trespasses of their sins, those who walk according to the course of this world, those who are sons and daughters of disobedience, those who live in the lusts of their flesh and indulge in the desires of the flesh, those who are by nature children of wrath, those very same in Christ Jesus might be made alive and by God's grace be saved as their sins are forgiven and be by the power of the Holy Spirit raised up and seated not as not as paupers, but as princes in the heavenly places. The truth is Christ Jesus took our place on the cross so that we could take his place, as Ephesians 2 says, in the heavenly places. That is the result of the death of the Lamb of God all those years ago. And we, we read the passage, it was a very bad day, beginning with the evening, which was really the beginning portion of the day. It was a long, arduous, tiring, stressful, frustrating, insufferable day. It was a bad day for our substitute, but consequently a very good day for those whom Jesus substituted him for. That is why we call it Good Friday. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, never, let, us, let us never forget what you did to save us. Let us never forget the agony that you endured, the cost that should have rightly been accredited to our account, instead was accredited to yours. The debt that we could never pay, you paid with your own precious blood. Let us never forget the sacrifice you, you laid down for us. Let us never forget the life you paid that, and the death you endured so that we could live and be set free. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for sinners like me. Amen.